Last time I wore this, the kids in the church said I look like Obi-Wan Kenobi. (laughs) Hopefully, we will connect this more with church history than with a fantasy sci-fi movie. But yes, indeed, you are here, Reformation Weekend, and every year we uh, spend our, our weekend talking about church history and, and to understand a little better uh, how we find ourselves where we are. If you're a guest with us today, this is a very different kind of uh, service, and I would invite you to come back next weekend. We'll be back in the Gospel of John next weekend. But you have visited on one of our crazy weekends, and we do this around here sometimes, just to add a little variety, which I always think is fun. This past Wednesday, we had one of our staff guys, uh, Joey Mayfield, who took a picture in front of the church, and he happened to snap the photo at just the right time. Maybe you saw this, it's been running around Facebook, but look at that. Now, I would like to think that was happening during one of my sermons. (laughs) Pretty cool picture. What is the story of this church? And what is the story of the church, capital C, the big story? This is what I want to tell you about today. We are a local church in here in the 21st century. But we are a part of a very large, massive story that has been going on for 2,000 years. Indeed, if you want to look at it, you could say since the beginning of time. And if you really want to look at it, you could even go back before that into the, uh, into the Godhead. But this is a big story, and it's a very important story. And it is a story in terms of the church that really began with the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before he ascended to heaven, Jesus gave the outline for what the story, the plot of the story. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what I want to do today is I want to tell you that story, the 2,000-year story of that outline, in one message. This is helpful in the same way that it's helpful when you go to a mall that you've never been to. And it's a big mall, Mall of America, let's say. And you get in that mall, and it's not very long before you get confused, right? And what do you begin looking for in the mall? You look for a map, one of those big maps. And when you come across the map, what are you really looking for? You're looking for a sticker, right? They always have a sticker. And on the sticker, it always says something. What does it say? You are here. And what a relief it is to see that sticker, because now you can see where you came from and where you need to go. And this message, and this truth of the message, is like that. By understanding where we've come from, we can understand where we are and indeed where we need to go. And I think the vast majority of American Christians in particular don't have the foggiest idea of the story of the, of the providences of God down through the centuries that allow us to be where we are today. And it's one of my sort of personal passions as a pastor to bring a sense of the history and the story of the past so that we can know where we are, to understand the broad, blood-stained shoulders that we stand on doctrinally and as a church And to understand better where we need to go from here. So, from resurrection to Bethel Church, 2011. Here's our story. The genesis of this story and the energy behind this story is love. This is a love story. And this is what I hope maybe is the difference between a lecture 
and a message that God could use to invigorate our church. Because really, we're not that interested in dates and different things like that. But to understand that this is a love story between Christ and his church. It began with love when he gave his life on the cross for us. We are sustained by his ongoing love. And it will be love at the end of the story when we are gathered with him when he returns. This is all about love. And if you can see agape in this story, it brings it to life. Because who doesn't love a love story? We all do. This story is basically the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. And how God has preserved his gospel, his word, and his people. Say that with me. His, his, and his people. Bear that in mind. Now, I already told you the outline was laid out by Jesus in Acts 1.8. It was going to begin in Jerusalem. It was going to go to Judea and Samaria. And then it was going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. So let's just follow that outline. We begin in Jerusalem. And the story in Jerusalem is that after, after Jesus uh, says what he does in Acts 1.8, he, is a, he ascends to heaven, and the, the disciples gather in the upper room along with some other people, and they are praying. And Acts 2 tells the story of how that day, suddenly, the Holy Spirit came down upon those disciples, the day of Pentecost. And it was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And all the people of Jerusalem, what's that sound? What's that sound? And they come running to hear what it is. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands before these people and declares to them that Jesus is the Messiah. 3,000 of them are pierced to the heart. They feel the conviction. uh, And they say, what must we do to be saved? Peter tells them they are saved, they are baptized. And that day is the beginning of the church it is it is the birthday of the church that's why it says happy birthday church on the day of pentecost perhaps we should celebrate that day each year as well so this began then this radical new society this new uh transformational people passionately following jesus now as their lord and their savior they have become followers, disciples of Christ. That began in Jerusalem. The next phase in the outline, Judea and Samaria, now we're in Acts 8. And what happens is that in Acts 7, we have Stephen, who is the first martyr of the church. He is killed, and there was a guy by the name of Saul, by the way, who was there helping in all of this, bear his name in mind. And with the, with the murder of Stephen, a great persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. And so guess what the Christians did when they were, when, when they, when the, the authorities were moving in to wipe them out? They fled into the countryside. And this is now Judea and Samaria. And as they went with them, guess what they took with them? You might be going, well, I'd probably get, I'd get my, I'd get some money and I'd probably get some food and I'd want to have some supplies. Is that really the most important thing? No. They took with them the gospel. And everywhere they went, they told people, listen, Jesus is the Messiah. He died for your sins. You gotta believe in him. We're followers of Jesus now. And we have the, the outflowing then from Jerusalem into the larger area of the gospel. We could ask the question if suddenly we were dispersed into the Midwest, what would we take with us? And would we be going everywhere and telling people, man, we have met Jesus and we want you to know him too. There might even be a little challenge in regards to you dispersing into your job place tomorrow or your school or wherever it might be. The early Christians were passionate for Christ. And everywhere they went, they were telling people, Jesus is the Messiah. Judea and Samaria. The next part of this is the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's the rest of this story. And this is Acts 9 through today. So let's take these in chunks now, okay? We're going to take this story now in chunks. And our next chunk of time is AD 33 through uh, 100. And there are in, there was in this period of time two shocking developments that happened. The first is in Acts 10. And in Acts 10, we have the very first 
Gentile convert to Christianity. His name was Cornelius. And Cornelius and the others that became Christians opened the eyes of the apostles that salvation, that God's plan for salvation was not just for the Jews, but was for the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles said, took you a second. I'm not preaching in the synagogue here today. I'm assuming most of us here are the Gentiles who are very glad that God's plan for salvation includes us. And so that then opened the eyes of the apostles that this thing is going global. Like this is world, this is massive. And indeed it was. The second thing that happened was that the main persecutor of the church, the guy that was leading the charge, a guy by the name of Saul, converts to Christianity and now becomes, commissioned by God, the apostle to the Gentiles. Which who would have thought that the main guy trying to defeat Christianity would now become its greatest missionary. And so the gospel is taken by Paul into uh, the world of the time. And the other apostles as well spread out. And we know from church history, for example, that Bartholomew went to Armenia. Andrew went to Russia and Ukraine. Thomas went to Persia and India. Matthew went to Ethiopia. James went to Egypt. Jude went to Assyria. And Peter went to Italy and Rome. Now in this first century there were a couple other big things that happened. One was in AD 70, Jerusalem, the Romans came to Jerusalem and they, they totally wiped out Jerusalem. The historian Josephus said there was, no, there was no two stones on top of each other. It was so bad, he said, you couldn't even tell that there was even had been a city there. So they wiped it out. And remember, Jesus said that this is what was going to happen. He prophesied that. And that includes the temple there in Jerusalem. The other part of the story is that from the beginning, there was terrible persecution of the Christians. Uh, In Acts 7 with Stephen, for example, and, and other things like that. There was not just simply Jewish persecution of Christians. There also was a Roman persecution of Christians. And they were viewed with great suspicion. And in particular, the Roman emperor Nero hated the Jews. In fact, in 64 AD, the great fire in Rome broke out, which many people now think that Nero started, so he could blame the Christians for having been the pyromaniacs that started this fire. And he used it as an excuse to kick out the Christians and to kill them. And Nero, history tells us, when he would catch Christians, he would throw them to lions, and he would impale them on sticks, and history tells us that he lit the city of, of Rome each night with the burning carcasses of our brothers and sisters, because they were Christians. So realize that the first 300 years of the church was a time of great atrocities being done against Christians. Terrible persecution until the time of Constantine, which we'll get to in a moment. Why were Christians hated so much? Well, primarily two reasons. First of all, they said that the emperor was not a god and he was not to be worshipped. And the Romans believed the emperor was a god and the emperors thought that they themselves were gods. Know anybody like that? (laughs) And so they didn't like that at all. The other reason that they were persecuted is that Christianity is exclusive. It says that there is only one God and there is only one Savior and his name is Jesus. The Roman religions and the Greek religions were very inclusive and they kind of took on anything. And the one thing that inclusive people don't, can't be inclusive about is people who are exclusive. And so they hated Christianity. And by the way, does that sound like anything you're reading in the paper today? Or maybe it summarizes uh, your the class that you're in in college. Christianity is hated for the same reasons, or I shouldn't say hated, but in many places is hated for the same reasons today. So they were thrown to lions, they were burned on stakes, and we could ask ourselves today, If such a persecution burst out right here in northwest Indiana towards Christians, how well would we do? How well would Bethel Church do? How many people would show up the next weekend at our church and say, you know what? I'm a Christian. I don't care what you do to me. Our brothers and sisters did admirably 
during this time. And if you would like to read more about that, Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's a famous book, tells the story of the atrocities that were done against the Christians in the first 300 years of the church. I encourage you to read it. And by the way, one other thing I wanted to say is that this persecution was not detrimental to the church. It actually strengthened it. And that is the way it always is. And we find that when God's people get a backbone about their faith and stand up for what they believe and don't just be all nicey-nicey all the time about things, that what happens is the world that hates them has reason to pause and to ask the question, where are they getting this courage? And that's why the old adage was true, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the gospel. And so everyone that they killed, more sprung up. Why? Because of the courage of the Christians. It it validated the claims that they were making that Jesus is the Savior of the world. There's a lesson in that for us in our very soft and comfortable Christianity in America. Eighty ninety. All right, AD 90, major turning point. Here's why. For all these years up to this point, from the death of Jesus to AD 90, if you had a question about anything, guess who you asked? An apostle. You would go to your neighborhood apostle and say, I was kind of wondering, not that there was one in every neighborhood, but you kind of get the idea. You would go to your neighborhood apostle and say, hey, I was kind of wondering about this. What was Jesus like with that? Tell me about this. Tell me about that. AD 90, John, the last apostle, Die somewhere around there. And with that now, there's no apostolic authority for the church saying, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. So from AD 90 all the way to today, guess where we turn for answers to that? To what the apostles wrote. That's right. Their writing becomes the authority in the church. Now, with that said, it would be 300 years until the New Testament that we have today would be compiled into one uh, compilation. How's that for a wonderful sentence? (laughs) That was horrible. But the point being that they didn't have that. There were writings that were here and there. and, And so in Rome, maybe they had the Gospel of Mark and they had the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. And in Ephesus, they maybe had a few of the letters that Paul had written to some of the area churches. So these people had this, these people had that. It had not been brought together and would not be for a couple hundred years. All right, so that concludes the first century. Let's take 100 to 500 bigger block of time, or I'm sorry, 100 to 400. This is known as the era of the early church fathers. And that is a broad term for that next generation of leadership after the apostles died. And this was a very precarious time for the church. No longer is John there or Peter there or Andrew or anybody else. Uh, they have passed off of the scene. The eyewitnesses to the resurrection have passed off the scene. And the church is in a very precarious time where heresies and compromise and different opportunities for this whole thing to collapse were there. And what we find is, is that God used leaders like Clement of Rome and Ignatius, who pastored in Antioch, and Polycarp, who pastored in Smyrna, and by the way, was a martyr for the faith at age 86. And I just got to pause here, because we have old people in the service. And I want to say to you, that you might think to yourself that these are years where maybe your witness doesn't matter as much, or you've put your time in, it's, the, it's time for the young people to do their, to do their bit, and all the rest. I hold out to you Polycarp who at at age 86 was challenged to worship the emperor. And he said, how could I deny my blessed Lord who has been so kind to me for all of these years? And at age 86, he was killed. All he had to do was say, uh, Caesar is Lord, but he wouldn't do it. Polycarp. So you old people that are here, I'm talking to you. That's right. Some of you are like, well, he obviously ain't talking to me because I'm not old. I'm talking to you. 
Would that God would raise up polycarp kind of examples of faith of our older brothers and sisters who are strong in the faith all the way to the end. Read about polycarp. He'll inspire you. Have I made my point? All right. No more comments about old people. Did you hear that? I'm kidding. Uh, just a joke. What was going on here, though, was that there was a struggle to protect the purity of the gospel. The, the, the challenge of the church in, the, in this era was not the persecution. We would look at that and go, oh, it would be so horrible. And the church must have been so, so horrible during those years. The suffering was not the problem. The problem was doctrinal compromise and heresies that sprung up because these doctrines had not been clarified yet. And so we find then some early heresies that I want to tell you about that rocked the church. Here's the first one, Gnosticism. And this is evident already in the first century. Paul writes uh, in Colossians against Gnosticism. It's found in other places. Basically, Gnosticism said that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. Now on the surface, that maybe doesn't sound that scary. But if you think about it, If the flesh is bad, if the flesh is inherently evil, what does that do to the incarnation of Christ? Could he actually have come in a body? No. So when he was on earth, it only appeared that he had a body. He wasn't actually human. That's a big deal, isn't it? Right? And then on top of that, if the flesh is bad, then that means that living in a body and the experiences of the body and the sensory pleasures of the body were all bad as well. And so that led to what is known as asceticism. And these are the hermit monks who went in the desert and tried to get away from all of their passions and temptations. And of course, they got out into the desert and guess what they found? They were still with them. Because passions and temptations are not on the outside. Where are they? They are on the Inside, Yes, so asceticism doesn't work. Its modern form would be legalism. It's all not good. Gnosticism. Arianism is the next one. And Arianism said that Jesus was different in essence from the Father. And it relates to how was Jesus the begotten Son of God, like John 3.16. If he was begotten, that means that he was not co-eternal with the Father. And if he's not co-eternal with the Father, then he's not actually what? He's not actually God. And so what, and what, what strikes you as you read through the story of the church is that this is the pattern that always happens. A heresy arises, a council is called, a creed is written, a doctrine is established, And then the church moves on in doctrinal purity over and over and over again. That's what happened. And that's basically what happened here with this heresy. Uh, This guy named Arius came along and taught that God, that Jesus was in fact not co-eternal, not the same essential nature as God the Father. And so there was this huge firestorm that was, uh, was created. And there was one guy especially who saved the day that God used to save the day for the doctrine of the person of Christ. And his name was Athanasius. And Athanasius was Egyptian. Uh, I don't think that's a very good picture of him, but we were unable to find a good photo. Some of you are like, what kind of church are we going to? They can't even find a photo of Athanasius. Okay, think about it a moment, all right? Think about it. So anyway, uh, Athanasius, he was uh, African. He was short. In fact, his, his uh, nickname was the Black Dwarf. That's what they called him, the Black Dwarf. But he was brilliant. And his writings, along with the Council of Nicaea in 325, called Arius a heretic and established that Jesus was begotten, not made. Of the same essential nature as the Father, co-eternal with the Father. And so the church comes out of the Council of Nicaea with the doctrine of the deity of Christ firmly established. A later council at Constantinople defined Jesus' humanity. And so by the end of the 4th century, we have the personhood of Jesus clearly established. Fully God, fully man, which are both 
absolutely essential. All right, last heresy class is Pelagianism. And Pelagianism said that man is inherently good and that he is saved by the life that he lives, the good works that he does. And this heresy was answered by one of my all-time heroes, a guy that I quote often, a guy by the name of Augustine. And Augustine was also brilliant, and he wrote in response to Pelagius and established with great clarity the nature of sin, the doctrine of man, the sovereignty of God, the beauty of Christ, and creation. And I quote him often. His teaching dominated the church for a thousand years. You know you're good when a thousand years later people are still listening to your sermons. All right, special note during this time. Two biggie things that happened. The first is, in 312, the Roman Emperor Constantine... Remember, Rome. did, Rome, did the Romans like the Christians? You're not with me? All right. No, they did not. 312, Constantine is going into battle. He has a vision of a cross and converts to Christianity and establishes now Christianity throughout the Roman Empire as the official religion of of the empire which was shocking this was an incredible turn of events this would be like going home and us reading in the news or seeing on the on the tv that the the premier of china has suddenly become a christian and declared that christianity is the official religion of china i mean what they were against Christianity, now they're for it. And so the Christians go from being hunted to being heroes now. And the Romans are paying for churches to be built, and they're paying the salaries of pastors and priests. And Constantine's mother goes in the Holy Land and finds certain spots, builds, for example, you go to Bethlehem, she built the church there in Bethlehem, built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. I mean, it's just a radical turn of events that happens when Constantine becomes a Christian. Second thing, and this is massive as well. Remember I told you that uh, there were the writings of the New Testament, and some people had this, and some people had that, and these people had this copy of that, and these people had this copy of that, but there had been no compilation of what the New Testament was. Well, we have in 367 AD, there is a series of councils, six of them, in Carthage, where they established what the measure would be for writings that would be considered scripture. That measurement is known as the canon. So when you hear the canon of scripture, we're talking about the, the measure the, that, that identified the writings that were inspired by God. And it's important to realize that the Council of Carthage did not pick what was scripture. God identified what scripture was. He is the one that inspired it, and the councils merely were there to affirm it. And so the compilation, the Bible that you had, that you brought with you today, that, those New Testament books, 367. Now the church has the, what we call the Bible, Old and New Testament together, which is a pretty exciting thing. All right. Let's take a big chunk of time. I think it's time to take a big chunk of time. How about 10 centuries? How's that sound? 500 to 1500 AD. The Middle Ages. All right, the Middle Ages, and you know, when people lived then, they didn't call, they didn't, they didn't walk around going, we're living in the Middle Ages. You know, that's what we look back now and call the Middle Ages. They were just living their life like we live our life. But during this time, what was happening was that in the Western church, Rome was becoming now the epicenter. And Rome is rising in prominence, rising in uh, influence and significance. And with the rise of Rome, you had the rise of the papacy, the popes, and the kinds of things that happened under their tenure. In fact, really, the eras are defined by the popes and what they did or did not do. Another thing that was happening was that there was an increasing conflict and tension between the Western church based in Rome and the Eastern church based in Constantinople. We'll get into that just for in a moment. And then compounding all of that, you had the rise of Islam. 
uh, and increasing conflict between Christianity and Islam. Sound like a newspaper you've read recently? Hmm. Interesting. All right. So let's talk about the great split. I think many people don't, many Christians don't know about the great split. Let me tell you about the great split. 1,054. Remember, I told you that there were two kind of poles that were developing within the church. To the west in Rome, to the east in Constantinople. And there was conflict between them primarily on two subjects. One is the celibacy of the priesthood, which I have my personal opinions on. And secondly, uh, there was the what was known as iconoclasm, which was the role of uh, images in worship. Okay, so if, to this day, if you were to go into an Eastern church, lots of images, lots of pictures, and all the rest, less so in the West. Well, what happened was that there was debate and rancor back and forth, so much so that the Pope in Rome sent a delegation to Constantinople, and they went into the biggest church in Constantinople, and they laid on the altar there a bull, a declaration of excommunication. The Western church excommunicated the entire Eastern church. Did the Eastern church like that? No, they didn't. And so guess what the leader of the Eastern church did? He sent a delegation to the Western church. And they went into the biggest church there in Rome and they laid on the altar a a, a, a declaration of excommunication of the Western church. And so basically they excommunicated each other. Known as the great split between the East and the West. And now no longer was there unity amongst the church. In fact, we have a map here just to show you to this day. You have uh, in the reddish color, you have the Eastern, more Eastern Orthodox Church. And then you have Western Catholic Christianity uh, to the West. To this day, that divide is still evident. And in fact, in our community, I think uniquely you see that because we have so many Eastern Orthodox churches. Have you ever wondered, you know, if you go a quarter mile north of our church, you have St. Peter and Paul. Orthodox Church. If you're driven by there and go, I kind of wonder what that's all about. Or how about the big church on Mississippi when you have friends and family visiting and you're going to the mall and you drive by that giant stone and they're all like, what is that? And you're like, I don't know, but I think Pastor Steve will tell us someday. (laughs) Now you know that is an Eastern Orthodox Church. And so we have in our area, you know, Macedonian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, different versions of that. That is a reflection then of this moment in history, 1054. Now shortly after the split, the Turks, along with their Islamic faith, invade the Holy Land and militarily take over the Holy Land. And this began some really bad centuries for uh, the Western Church. And it actually began prior to that because... Uh, All the way back in 800, the church had begun to enter into political alliances with the political leaders of Europe, uh, beginning with a guy named Charlemagne, if you've heard of Charlemagne and, and others after that. So that they created what was known as the Holy Roman Empire, which was kind of a quasi political, quasi religious amalgamation, which only led to confusion because, uh, the kings and the popes were all the time arguing over who was in control. Can you imagine that that would happen? Shocking. Shocking. It is. So the emperors would say, we're actually the ones that are in charge of the Holy Roman Empire. The popes would say, no, we're actually the ones that are really in charge of the Holy Roman Empire. And there was conflict and turmoil and corruption of all kinds. In fact, we see that just 800 years after the ascension of Christ to heaven, how far off the church had come. Remember what Jesus had said to them? What was their mission? You are to be my witnesses. You are to make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 800 years later, it's become this massive, political, corrupted sort of thing. And we see just how easily the church can get off of its mission. Here's another example, tragically, that happened. The Western church was not at all happy that... Uh, Muslims were in charge of the Holy Land and the city, the holy city of Jerusalem. And so they marshaled Christian warriors to go and to free the Holy Land 
from the Turks. These were known as the Crusades, and there were six of them over a period of 150 years. Uh, and this was very bad because under the banner, carrying banners of the cross, these soldiers were going into towns and they were murdering and they were pillaging. And it was a very bad scene that to this day in uh, the Islamic world, the Crusades are a very bitter taste in their mouth. And in spite of the Crusades, the end result is that Jerusalem was still in the hands of the Turks where it would remain until World War I, 700 years later. Okay. Now, anybody in the mood for some good news? Because this has been mostly bad news. How about some good news? I've come to church. I want to be uplifted. I want to see that God is at work and in control. How about some good news? Would you like some good news? All right. Well, here's some good news. By the 14th century... There were, there was sort of a whisper in the air. There were winds of change in the air. There was a sense that something big was about to happen. In the year 1371, a guy by the name of John Wycliffe challenged the church's doctrine of the papacy and said, the Pope is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And Wycliffe had a dream that there would be a Bible in the language of the common people so that they could read the Bible for themselves. Realize that for all of these centuries, the Bible remained in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, which meant that the common people who came to church They didn't know what it meant. Only the educated, only the priests could read it. And so they could basically make it say uh, jolly well whatever they wanted to make it say. And Wycliffe wanted the people to read the Bible for themselves. John Huss agreed with him in Prague and was burned at the stake for it. But the winds of change were in the air. And the wind would become a hurricane that we call the Great Reformation. Dun, 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 dun. Cue applause. All right, let's talk about the Reformation. 1516. We have uh, the beginning of the Reformation. Most people would identify it uh, as, as, as beginning then, although, again, there were winds of change that, that led to it, Huss and others. But the main guy in this story now is a guy by the name of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was a Catholic monk, brilliant guy, who through his studies and in his teachings in a Catholic school became convinced that salvation was not actually the way that he had been taught. That salvation was not a matter of good works, but it was a matter of faith. Like Romans says, the just shall live by faith. And this opened up to him now an understanding of the scriptures that blossomed in his heart and led him in on October 31st, 1516, to write down 95 challenges to the church, theses, and he went up to the door of the Wittenberg church there in Germany and he nailed those 95 theses to the door, 14, or I'm sorry, 1516. Which means that we are only five years away from the 500th anniversary of the Great Reformation. And I just want to say right now, I think it would be great, five years from now, let's plan on having the mother of all Reformation weekends. Like where, here's what I'm, I want to get up and I want to look out and I want to see every man in something like this. I want it to look like uh, like a, we could have a Reformation fair, uh, like that one, uh, your credit score commercial uh, that you know what I'm talking about, where everyone's all sort of like middle-aged, kind of doing their thing. I think it would be fun. Let's just plan on it, and I won't be in charge of it. Somebody else will, but it'll be a great time. <laughs> so what happened then, he nails them to the, to the door of the church. This led to a great confrontation between Martin Luther and the Catholic authorities, primarily the Pope. And this happened at what is known as the Council of Worms, 
where Luther stands up to the Pope, stands up to the council, stands up to the authorities and says that I am bound by conscience and I am bound by scripture and I will not recant what I have said and what I have written. The result of that is that the church sentences him to death. But God providentially saves him through a German prince who squirrels him away to a hidden castle where in six weeks Luther translates the entire New Testament into German, which is to this day considered one of the most miraculous efforts that's ever happened. But now the Germans have the Bible in their own language. And along with Zwingli and with Calvin and with others, the hurricane of the Reformation radically reinvented Christianity in Europe. And is, its effects are still being felt today. Here are some of the tenets of the Reformation. They're known as the solas. Sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Scripture alone is our authority. Sola fide. By faith alone. Salvation is a matter of faith. Faith is the means by which we are saved. Not my work, not my effort, not a declaration from a, a church father, but by faith. And, and other solas, uh, grace and, and, and reformation is one of them. I can't think of how it goes right now. But these were the tenets of the reformation. And the followers of this were known as Protestants. If you ever wondered where that word came from. What does it mean to be a Protestant? They were the ones who joined the Reformation. Now, aiding in this movement was a new invention called the Gutenberg Press. And guess what the very first book printed on the Gutenberg, very first book ever printed, period, known as what? The Gutenberg Bible. That's right. The Bible was the very first thing printed. And soon, there were translations of the Bible in the languages of the people. And now the people could read the Bible for themselves. And they were realizing, wait a second, what I've been told all these years and what I have been taught isn't consistent with what the Bible says. And what happened was, is that the doctrinal horse was out of the barn and never to return, Lord willing. And God's word was available to God's people. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Praise God for the Bible that we can read and understand. But you've got to realize how scandalous this was in the day. As an example, in 1525, there was a guy named William Tyndale who wanted an English translation of the Bible and, and did one, smuggled them into England, was caught doing so, and was burned at the stake for it. Might make you look at that Bible you have a little bit differently. He gave his life for that. It makes me kind of wonder, when we get to heaven, to realize there wasn't an English Bible until 1525, when we get to heaven, and we, you know, we're kind of meeting all these different people from the history of the church, and we meet somebody, hey, when were you around? Ah, I was from, I was like 265. Really? When were you? Ah, it's like, you know, late, late 20th century, early 21st century. Oh. You were one of those people, you, had the, you could read the Bible. Yeah, I had like six of them in my house. Really? I didn't read it that much, though. What? Be prepared to be slapped in heaven. <laughs> there's a little humor in that, but there's a lot of tragedy in that as well. To have a Bible that you can read is a precious thing. So, another key thing that happened was the Heidelberg Catechism, which was hugely influential and is the most popular Protestant definition of the faith. And in 1611, there was a translation of the Bible called the King James Version that came out that was hugely influential. And you might say, well, that King James, he was a real, he was a real supporter of those Christians, wasn't he? Not at all which is a great irony, he was not. In fact, the Christians, a group of them known as the separatists, finally got so fed up that they could not practice their faith that they got onto a ship called the Mayflower and they sailed to some new world where they hoped that maybe they could practice their faith, their Reformation faith, in the manner that they so pleased. And they sailed to America and established colonies. And so we come now to the year 1700. 
okay, 1700 to present. The story of the church in America, and this is a hard story to summarize because it's so complex and there's so many little things in it, but broadly speaking, what happened was that the Puritans came across as well, others came motivated by other things, but largely the early colonies of the church came out of the Reformation, had a similar kind of faith heritage. But as is often the case, the second and third generation of those people, guess what happens to their spirituality? Remember Israel? Great heroes, great godly people. What happened in the second and third generation? Like this. If you're a second or third generation uh, Christian here today, beware. Beware. You've got headwinds against you ever rising to the faith of your parents. It's very, very difficult. And it didn't happen in the colonies either. And so right away, second and third generation, spirituality is at a low ebb. But there is a famous revival that took place. It was known as the Great Awakening. And God used primarily three people to bring back kind of a Christian faith to the U.S. And that was, first of all, George Whitfield, who I love. Another guy by the name of John Wesley. And... The brilliant theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards preaching there in Northampton, Massachusetts, a man that we also quote very often around here and love very much. And the fruit of that is that at least 10% of New England converted to an active Christian faith. And since then, there have been other revivals and awakenings and such that have happened. By the 1800s, then, you have America with a lot of social problems, primarily slavery, that are creating tremendous tension within the country. Thousands of churches are being planted primarily by the Methodists. If you've ever heard of the circuit-riding Methodist preachers, they were planting these churches as as the country moved west, churches, churches, churches all over the place being uh, developed. Revivals are being led by guys like D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday, who keep a voice for the gospel present in America. But at the same time, you have rising as well the old Pelagian heresy. That man is inherently good. And this kind of doctrinal liberalism is what it was called. Uh, began to become very influential primarily in the mainline denominations. And they basically said that the purpose of the church was not necessarily evangelism. And there isn't really sin and atonement and all that. But we are here to do good things and to reform society and to bring good blessings to the people around us. That's what we're going to be about. And with that, of course, their churches were dying. At the same time, Darwin writes Origin of Species. And so now for the first time, there is a common and somewhat accepted explanation for all of reality that doesn't include a creator God. America is prosperous. And so you have, at the same time, that science is whispering to Americans that uh, there is not a God that you're accountable to. Prosperity is whispering to, to Christians and concluded that the point of life is living for today and not for eternity. And so we have then the enlightenment, its fruit is being born in America, and the basic mantra of America uh, at that time was, it's all about me. My, how things have changed. So, with the, the, in the churches, with the doctrine of sin going out, out goes the, the purpose of the atonement, substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement. Key doctrines are flying out of the church, the inspiration of scripture as well, leaving the churches that had been established with no actual gospel that they are proclaiming anymore. And so the fruit of that then is it's, it's like a reenactment of the Mayflower because the evangelical Christians in those churches are like getting in their ships and sailing away. And they are starting new churches and new denominations that are holding to the old faith, the old doctrine taught by Edwards and Tyndale and Luther and Augustine and Athanasius and Paul and Peter and Jesus, which by the way, the most precious thing that we have is not a building it is it is not a tradition it is the gospel and the last thing that we give on is the gospel of christ 
2,000 years, people have been living, preaching, dying for this gospel. And it is to this day in this church our most precious possession. And we had better understand that and realize that. Or the same old little subtle things that have taken down many a church will happen here. Well, in in the 1930s, there was a group of people who were a part of one of these churches that had left a liberal denomination. And they lived in North Gary, Indiana. And they said to themselves, you know what? We should, we should have a church down in South, way South Lake County, which back then was, you know, North of Maryville somewhere. And so they started a church, began as a Bible study. It later was incorporated as a church in the Brunswick area of Gary. In 1969, they moved to Maryville. And in 2000, they moved to Crown Point, Indiana. And that is the church that you are a part of today. That is Bethel Church. That is us. You are here. Cue the applause. Somewhere in there would have been a good place. Right there would have been a very nice place. And so we see remarkably how 2,000 years ago, Jesus on the other side of the earth says to 12 guys, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Here's what you need to do. You need to make disciples. You need to teach them to observe everything I've told you. And baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see then, however, over all of these years, in spite of persecution and in spite of horrible sort of world, global, political, ecclesiastical conflict and compromise and all the rest, that God has continued to preserve His Word, His Gospel, and His people. And indeed, this is the outflow of what Jesus said to Peter when he said, upon this rock, I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We are living that story. And one reason I think it's so important that we realize where we are in this story is that our part of the story matters as much as anything that I've told you already. In fact, Christian, you are a part of the story. You are living a part of this story. The outflow of Jesus' commands, the, uh, the, the, the story of the church, this love story, you individually are living a part of that story. That we as a congregation, we are a part of that story. And every other church that is true to the gospel is a part of that story. And it is a glorious story. It is a wonderful story. And it will culminate someday when he comes back. And when we are joined to our blessed, the the groom, we are the bride of Christ. We are joined with the groom. And so shall we be with him forever. And that is our blessed hope. And that is why the church is precious. The local church is precious. Jesus didn't die for a school. He didn't die for a camp. He didn't die for a political action committee. He didn't die for a club. He's not coming back for any of those things. He is coming back for his church. He gave his blood for it. And that is why we, even here as we are a part of this local church, need to realize that it is a precious thing to have a Bible. It is a precious thing to be a Christian. And it is a precious thing to be a part of a church. The church is the church of Jesus Christ. And so that is the story of history. It truly is his story. His story. And this is where we are in it. So let's write our part of the story well, amen? For his glory. Let us pray. Father.